Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about Risk Reversal's brand new podcast, Breaking Even, with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. This week, Ned previewed the Ryder Cup with legendary sportscaster Jim Nance and broke down all the odds with handicapper Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I even dropped by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. Episodes drop every Thursday, so subscribe to it in your podcast store and follow at Breaking Even Pod on Twitter for all the latest updates. Here's a sneak peek. So, Coach, the Ryder Cup is upon us. Right, we're going to be at Whistling Straits. The teams have been selected. By Friday morning, we're going to know who's playing, who, who's pairing up, who the captain, Steve Stricker, on the American side, Padraig Harrington on the European side. Let's talk a little bit about general odds. Let's kind of reverse engineer this in terms of who's going to win, but then I want you to go down the rabbit hole and let's talk about sure. some interesting bets that are on your radar. Well, here's the thing. I heard somebody the other day on a national show, and I, I literally about fell out of my seat where they said, oh, there's not as much to bet on this week. It's only the Ryder Cup. It's only three days. You don't have 156 players like you normally would. And I'm like, what is this person talking about? I literally just wrote down six different ways that you can bet this way and then multiple ways within those six. All right. You can bet on who's going to win, Europe or United States, that's pretty basic. Then you can bet on the total points for each team. Are they going to get over 14, over 15, over 16? You can do that. Total points per player. Is Justin Thomas going to get two points, three points? There's an over-under there. Head-to-head each day. Head-to-head on Sunday in the individual singles. You can also bet on the exact points per day. Like, is the United States going to win 3-1 in the morning? You can bet on that. How about the entire day? Is it going to be 6-2 Europe? You can bet on that. There's a million different ways to bet the Ryder Cup. It's why it makes it's the most fun event in sports to bet on. So I don't know why anybody would say, oh, there's not a lot to bet on. It's so much fun. And right now, the basic one, if you're just basic, you can bet on the United States. They're a minus 195 a favorite. Europe comes back at plus 154. So that means that if you want to win $100, you'd have to bet $195 on the United States. So there you have it, people. A clip from our brand new podcast, Breaking Even with Ned Michaels. Follow Breaking Even in your favorite podcast store so new episodes are delivered to your phone each Thursday morning. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So, Danny, tomorrow when this drops, this being the On The Tape podcast, there's an excellent chance that the Panthers of Carolina will be the first 3-0 team in the National Football League, much to the consternation, which is a great word, of Jet fans all over. Do you care to opine on that quickly? Jet fans, Mets fans, wherever players leave those two New York teams, they tend to outperform wherever they go. So I'm sure... Of course, they're going to watch, and I'm sure they're going to assume that he's going to play well tonight. And I think they will be 3-0 and after tonight for sure. So there's some other games out there that look interesting as well, you know. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Dan Nathan, I have said numerous times that I'm most happy when the Mets of New York lose, more so than when the Yankees win. And I actually said earlier this week that 
Although the Yankees need the Red Sox to lose while the Mets were playing the Red Sox, I was, in fact, rooting for the Red Sox. Do you find that confounding? Do you find that problematic? I find it kind of trolly, guy. I think it's part of your, like, kind of, you know, WFAN, your little Twitter spaces, your little Twitter thing that you got going. You are literally existing to troll New York Mets fans at this moment. That's what you're doing. Well, you are listening, by the way, to On the Tape. I am Guy Adami, joined as always by Dan Nathan and the NFL wizard, Danny Moses. It was a wild week for the markets. It was an extraordinary week for the markets. We'll break it down, all the moves. Plus, we're joined by Sawhill Bloom to help explain this Evergrande situation in a new segment called Get Ready, Rotting and Threading. And later, we'll go <laughs> off the tape with financial journalist Bethany McLean. I got to tell you something. Monday, it felt as if this was the beginning of something very large. Obviously, the market sold off in a meaningful way. People are attributing it to the Evergrande situation. Yes, clearly that's the headline. And I think we've all been saying for quite some time that that was just one of many things. And for whatever reason, the market decided to look at it. Now, here we are taping on a Thursday evening on the wake of a rebound that's been tremendous. And quite frankly, it's been something we've all grown accustomed to. I'm just curious. I still think there's another wave lower, but clearly the market is telling a much different story. Yeah, I mean, it definitely absorbed that news of Evergrande. I still think that's an ongoing story. We'll see how that plays out. I don't think the worst is behind us as far as that news flow. I think people took solace in the fact they knew the Fed was coming on Wednesday when the market sold off Monday, so it was a good excuse to buy the dip. I think the Fed gave them exactly what we thought they would. I don't think they moved playbook at all. They've kind of predicated their future based upon both jobs, inflation, and the virus. So they've, you know, obviously they're just going to use that as the excuse for better or for worse. But the move today in rates, guys, I mean, that's a, that's a big move. And the move over in Europe in rates, I mean, I was looking at the, at the gilts up 10 basis points today to 0.9%. And I think Norway raised rates. And so there were some movements today to really talk about in oil as well. So we can get into that stuff. But again, churning underneath the surface of the market. Yes, it did rally, but it doesn't feel great to me still. Yeah, I would, I would say that that rate move that you guys are talking about. So the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield at 1.43%, breaking out of a multi-month range. I think you got to go back to Q1 when rates were rallying. They went from 1% to what guy in the late March, 1.77%. What was really underperforming there? Mega cap tech was underperforming. And if you want to just consider one of the reasons why, Danny, you just said under the hood, right? We've seen lots of Sectors, lots of stocks really perform very poorly while these mega cap tech stocks have held the market up. Unless you see a massive rotation into cyclicals, into financials, and they're able to break out, we know that transports have been acting very poorly. I'm not sure there's new highs in the market anytime soon, especially when you consider some of the earnings data that we are starting to get from a whole wide swath of companies. Obviously, there's some transports, there's some tech, there's there's just a bunch of stuff going on right here that I don't think it lines up with what's going on with the economy, the data that's weakening, and then some of these earnings revisions lower that we're starting to see. I think we all would agree that Federal Express is an extraordinarily important company for a number of different reasons. And if you go back and listen to or read their earnings report, I mean, it's an unmitigated disaster. Now, this reminds me, by the way, of the Federal Express of 2018 and 19, where they basically couldn't get out of their own way. 
But a lot of things they're talking about are things that I think are systemic and are problematic, and they're not going to go away anytime soon. Supply chain issues, and oh, by the way, pricing issues. They got to pay people more. And that wage growth that we've talked about a number of times, I've submitted, Danny, that that's the final piece to this inflation puzzle. It's here in spades. And oh, by the way, on this Thursday, whilst taping, we're talking about a 10-year yield that's now either side of 1.43%, the highest levels we've seen in quite some time. I mean, at some point, all this stuff is really going to matter. And you look at labor costs, you look at oil costs, and you, you, and you look at rates. Those are massive inputs for a lot of companies, especially Federal Express, obviously, on the oil and the labor. And yes, they're going to try to pass this on, but it's going to lag. And so they're going to get hit. And your coworker, Leisman, made a comment kind of during the Fed meeting a couple of days ago. He said, well, the Fed may be proven correct because if these companies don't pass on these rate increases or these wage increases to the consumer – then that means that it is transitory. My thought on that was, well, that means their margins are going to get hit, which means the market's very expensive. And so if we have another rate move here, another 10 basis point move, and oil stays up here, I think people are going to start to take stock, no pun intended, of what's going on out there. Yeah, and I think that's the point. If we hit peak margins and then we have some structural headwinds to margins going forward, that would really be a thing, especially as rates are moving higher. If they do move higher, I know that Guy has definitely been in that camp. My thought was that the longer they stay down there, the likelihood that they test. And I just want to go back and make one point about today's rally with the S&P 500 rallying with rates. You know what didn't rally? in commensurate with the S&P 500. Apple was up 67 bips. Amazon was up a percent. Alphabet was up 66 bips. Microsoft was up 33 bips. And Facebook was up 80 bips. So all massively underperforming. And I'm just going to tell you guys this. If people are concerned about basically slowing growth, they're concerned about peak margins, they're concerned about market valuation, and now you layer on some of these measures that companies are taking to deal with supply chain bottlenecks or shutdowns. In the case of Nike, we just saw a downgrade to their guidance. We saw Costco tonight talking about hiring their own ships to get product, but right now they're not going to pass that through. That's a hit on margins. We saw what Facebook had to say here. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And let me tell you something. If you don't have those five big horsemen leading the charge. I just don't think financials very near their highs, oil near six month highs here. Like those groups just don't do enough. You're going to need transports. You're going to need more cyclicals. And I just don't see it here. And one last point, the S&P 500. Guy, you said that Monday might have been the start of something. Well, let me tell you what it was the start of. It was the start of a technical breakdown in the S&P 500. When it broke that uptrend, they've been in place since March 2020. Now we know what to shoot against. Okay, the s S&P 500 topped out at 45.45 a little more than a week ago. Here we are at 44.50. We're 100 points away. That past support, right, that trend line is now resistance. Let's see if we can get above that. That's probably somewhere about 45.25. I have a question for Danny Moses. So, Danny, get ready. But before I go to Danny Moses, Dan, I want to go back to you like a game of ping pong or pickleball, which apparently is very popular now Hot. amongst people my age. So, amongst your older yes, people. Yes, older yeah. people, my, exactly. So, a week or so, maybe two weeks or so ago, you got rather exercised about Facebook. I think we called it, what is that Tom Morello guy? What's the name of his band? Rage Against the, the Machina, the Joe's Equities or something. Anyway, 
You've been spot on. You pointed it out. You mentioned Facebook just now. There's some things going on in Facebook that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge, but they're this close. And folks, I know you can't see me, but I'm putting my fingers very close together to falling under this whole ESG thing, which could be catastrophic for Facebook. The number one story on Bloomberg today, Facebook has big tobacco moment over kids' mental health toll. I think they're obviously referring to that Wall Street Journal investigation series of last week where there was tons of leaked memos. Just tons of leaked memos. But there's a lot going on there, man. Here's another headline. This headline stinks. Facebook overpaid the FTC fine by billions to shield CEO Zuckerberg. I mean, it sounds like they're hiding something absolutely horrible over there in absolute plain sight here to me. And I will tell you that that kind of downgrade to guidance that they gave, that soft downgrade, when's the last time you heard that? You know, the last time you heard any sort of guidance? What was it, July, maybe about four or five years ago, guy? When that stock had the single largest one day decline. I think it was like a hundred billion dollars or something like that. Maybe there's a moment coming here for Facebook. I remember. I absolutely remember. I remember doing the show that night. Now, Danny Moses, get ready. Unmute yourself. I want to ask you a question. I have submitted, I have posited a number of times that the bond volatility that we are seeing right before our very eyes is startling to say the least. And if that bond volatility somehow manifested itself in the equity world, we would be talking about it all day long, every single day. Thoughts on a 10-year yield, which, by the way, should be the most liquid instrument on the planet, trading like a biotech stock. Yeah, you bring up a great point. And Dan, let me just say that was, I thought everything you just said there was perfect. I think you set up the Facebook extremely well. And if I'm not mistaken, the chief technology officer resigned. Yes, you did. So just throw that in. I was like, when you see that stuff happen. But yeah, rates didn't matter today because I think people... We're so excited to get past the Fed, so excited to see the dot plot move, so excited to see rate hike expectations move sooner and still the market was still reacting like that. But guy, to your point, it will matter. And if rates do move here, 150, 155, 160 people will notice and it will, you're right, most liquid instrument in the world to trade like that's insane. It will matter. It's just not being inputted yet into, let's say, discount rates. All right. So so I have one for you, Danny boy. Okay. So the last time the US, the 10-year US Treasury yield was trading above 1.4, you know, the S&P 500 was much lower here. So like at some point, you're, you're like, when do this start to filter into valuations? We talk about valuation all the time. People don't seem to be too bothered about S&P, you know, trading 23 times or something like that. You start to factor in higher rates and you start to factor in lower margins. And all of a sudden, all of these valuations that no one gave a crap about, right? Because we're in this raging bull market with a very accommodative Fed, that kind of changes the, the whole dynamic, I think. And especially when you have an S&P and a NASDAQ up 18% a year, and now down only a couple percent from all-time highs. Well, you already stated it, but I think there's certain sectors which are now getting the lift. So oil moving like this, is that, is that good for the stock market, oil stocks? Sure. You know, that, that's great. You know, certain things, all the banks and financials, they get the benefit of a steepening yield curve, which we've seen happen today. Uh, they get the benefit of absolute higher rates, which we've seen happen. So that's great. Those are all great on the margin. That can lift the market up to a level. But at some point, to your point, all the input costs related to that go into these other cyclicals. And Dan, I think the, the best point you make is these big five five or six tech names, if they fail to hold or fail to keep moving, we're in trouble here. 
And so, you know, I think there's a lot of volatility coming for sure. Not that I'm looking necessarily to play stock market here, but I will tell you folks, if you're looking for some ideas, I happen to think that oil service, although really got banged up over the last couple of months, seemingly back on the horse now, take a look at Halliburton specifically, seems to be breaking out to the upside. I do think oil service names go higher and I'm probably in the minority here, but I actually do think that banks can catch a bid as well on the back of these and this rate move. Banks obviously have underperformed recently. I think you'll see them get on their horse again. Now, we want to do a little segment. I think we're calling this Mean Tweets. Is that correct? Do I read that right? And that's obviously a play on Mean Streets, which folks my age are very familiar with. I get a lot of nasty stuff. Everybody loves Danny Moses. Everybody Not loves true. Danny Not Moses. True. I mean, that's because, no, I'm just telling you. And I think most people like Dan Nathan. For now, for now. Nobody seems to like me. For example, let me just give you one of the tweets that I got recently. Here is from Joseph. His Twitter thing is M-Y-T-T-Y-M or something like that. I'm not sure. He tweeted to me yesterday, Gaia Dami, you are a POS. I assume that means piece of shit. So I responded back, many share that view. <laughs> then he types to me, and for some reason, he ta- what do they call when you tag somebody, Dan? They call them tagging him. Yeah, right. So he tagged Karen in this one, and he says, guy, dot, you are a loser, dot, 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 you have no clue. So I type back to him, I have no clues that I am a loser or... I'm a loser that in addition to that loserness has no clue. He had no response to that. Twitter is a dark, dark place. And I encourage folks to check out my feed because for some reason, I like to engage with these people. A lot of people will not engage. And so you never see it. And they just retweet the nice stuff. For some odd reason, I like to retweet and engage in the nastiness. Yeah, but Guy, you have a lot more people that appreciate what you do on CNBC and obviously our podcast and the way you engage with people on Twitter. And I will just say this, and you obviously are a very dear friend of mine. I've never met more people IRL, as the as the kids say, don't they say that in, in real uh-huh. life, that so many people, how they feel about you. You just, you're, you're a mensch, as my people would say. All right. But that was really funny because we were talking with Diaz earlier, Amanda Diaz, and we were talking about you just engaging with some of these people. And then I get a lot of really nasty things. And, and you know, like this one was great. This is from Bill Coolish. He says, what was the last decade risk reversal in which you made a correct market call? Asking for a friend. I mean, I love that. I, I just, I love that. Bring it on. Danny Moses, you know, you haven't done enough TV. Obviously, you were featured in a big fancy movie that Guy Dami refuses to see. Actually, it's raining. I'm going to go, I'm going to go into the blockbuster after yeah. this and pick well, it up. No you know, question. Danny, a few more months with us on the tape. And I think, I, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to be down. right there in the mess with yeah. this. So yeah, I don't, I don't engage as much, but I, I, I plan to engage more. And when I find myself going down that deep dark hole, I'm sure I will encounter those emails and those tweets, uh, you know, that are there for sure. Kind of fun. All right. So, so listen, we're almost out of here. I mean, just, just in general guys, it was kind of a wacky week. We had that Friday sell off the markets, S and P and the NASDAQ, they kind of stopped Friday right on those uptrends. Right. And so it was kind of like a moment of truth from a technical perspective, they were either going to hold and bounce or they were going to break and they broke and they broke hard. And I will tell you the CNBC, they did not pull out the markets in turmoil because we got that late day rally. They did pull out the market sell 
sell-off graphic, Ayadami. Ah. Um, and since then, it's really been, what, three, three and a quarter percent off of the lows. Guys, are we out of the woods here? I mean, is ever, I know, and I know we're going to go deep in rotting and threading. We have to tell people what that is. It's Danny has been rotting, ripping off the tape about Evergrande for weeks now. So this is not a news story to him. That's why you listen to on the tape. But we had our friend Sawhill Bloom, who does these great threads on Twitter, and he's been threading about Evergrande. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But are, are, is it done? Are we over, guy? Is there is there some sort of final event here, a gut punch? No, I don't think it's over by any stretch of the imagination, you know, because I do believe that if yields continue to go higher, that's going to actually be a huge drag on the broader market. So we'll see. So although things look great today, I think we're going to be seeing a much different, singing a much different tune in the weeks to come. I actually think this Evergrande is a distraction from all the other stuff. And when they, and if this thing resolves itself, however it does, when people pull their head out of that and start looking around at other things, I think there's a lot of other stuff to worry about. So no, I don't think we're out of the woods at all. It's hard, just hard to see a sustained higher market from here. We've talked about this. Can it tread water and bounce around down 3% up to down? Sure. It can churn here for a while, which is probably the best case scenario as far as I'm concerned. But there is a sector we should just wrap this with having Brady Cobb on here last week talking about the potential for the Safe Bank Act and cannabis getting added to the National Defense Authorization Act, which it did by the House. And if it stays there and there on the Senate in a week, you know, we're going to find out if this thing goes through. And if that does, that's a huge boon for those stocks. Stocks are up about 10% roughly from, you know, when we had them on when they when it came out that it was actually put into the bill. So some also to keep an eye on that. We, we got to give a shout out to Brady Cobb on that for sure. No, and I'm thrilled we had him on. And that was timely, as they say, prescient, as some say. I would say it if I could spell it, but I think there's a C in there some way. Before we get out of here, Danny, you've been, what do they call it when you're en fuego doing things, Dan, Nathan? Call them all geeked up. <laughs> Call it en fuego. You have been en fuego, I, I believe. With your, give me, give me your pick of just. I want one pick of the week, Danny Moses, in the national foot in the league where they play. I'm going to stay out of college this week, even though I almost got a backdoor cover for Auburn, Penn State. But that's fine. I'm happy for the Penn State fans. I like the Tennessee Titans laying five at home against Indianapolis. I, I think Dan Nathan might be playing quarterback for the Colts this week, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. But I mean. People think Tennessee might have a letdown after that huge win last week against Seattle. I don't know. They're such a well-coached team. I like them at home this week, laying the wood. All right, Danny, I owe, I owe you a hundy, so I'm going to take the other side of that for a hundy. This, if this continues to go on, you're going to owe him like 1600 bucks by like 1700 now. He actually won back 100 because I hesitantly let him bet Tampa. I didn't love Atlanta, but I took it. But then we were talking during the weekend, and I told him I love the Ravens, and they obviously beat the Chiefs outright. Great game. That could have gone either way. All right, so I'm going to say this. Right now, we are not together. Danny and I are both in L.A. in separate locations. Guy Adami is in parts unknown over there and NJ, but Danny and I are both in LA. We're going to be seeing Pearl Jam on Sunday night at the Ohana Festival. And I think I have a Pearl Jam lyric, which actually speaks to what we've been talking about with the markets, with Evergrande and stuff. And it was really simple one. It's from a song called Nothing Man. And it goes like this. He who forgets will be destined to remember. Danny Moses, sing us out with a little Nothing Man because you've got a great voice. I will. And I actually believe that that's if you haven't seen enough cycles in the market, you know, you don't know this, but he who forgets will be destined <laughs> to remember nothing, man. There it is. When we come back, the aforementioned rotting and threading with Sawhill Bloom and later financial journalist Bethany McLean. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Sawhill Bloom is an investor, educator, and storyteller. He publishes a weekly newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle, where he tries to demystify the world of finance. You may also know him for his in-depth threads on Twitter. He was a pitcher on the Stanford baseball team. Sawhill, welcome back to On The Tape. All right, Sawhill Bloom here. A couple weeks ago, we were sitting down to tape On The Tape. And I get a text from Sawhill with all this stuff on Evergrande. And Danny was getting ready to rot about Evergrande. Now, we call that ripping off the tape on On the Tape, Sawhill. Okay. And so I was like, God, you guys share a brain. We have to make this happen here. Right, Danny? And you were all geeked up about it. I was never that handsome, by the way. But I think we do share a brain. And I love your behavioral finance aspect to the markets, the way you write. You write like you've been around for 70 years in this market. You write like you've seen seven cycles. I think you've seen one in terms of like a down market. I mean, you're pretty young. You were throwing baseballs not too long ago, but your wisdom is there. So what led you to the Evergrande path or what sparked your interest there? You know, what led me to it was just this fascination with the psychological side of these kind of unwinds, these deleveraging spirals. And what I notice when you sit on financial media and you're reading all these stories is that most of it always focuses on the technical side. You hear a lot about the debt numbers, all the liabilities. Everyone's breaking that down. FinTwits constantly focused on how they got here, how they got as over indebted as they were. But no one talks about that psychological side, this whole spiral that starts playing out, the narrative that starts to play in the media how that feeds the entire fury around it, the protests that started. And so I kind of just felt like, okay, that's what I can add to this narrative. That's what syncs up with my overall thesis and what I tend to write about. And that was where I plugged into the story. But when you dug deeper into it, I know you follow certain people on Twitter, you were getting your information from various sources. You kept going into it because you saw something else. It wasn't just, oh, here's a highly indebted company. This is not just about Evergrande, right? This is China in general. This has been coming for years. But it sounds like the way that China approaches business versus their constituents has now been a little bit separated. I think that's one of the keys here yeah. to this story. No, absolutely. I'm a multidisciplinary guy. Like I like to think about things on a number of planes. And this situation has that. And that was what attracted me to it. You have this massive geopolitical thing going on in the background of a big business thing. And so when you start looking at something and there's the finance angle, interesting. There's the psychological angle I find interesting. There's the geopolitical angle and the relationship between the US and China and how that all plays out, the macro side of it, the underlay of everything happening with crypto and all of the Web3 things that are happening with China regulation. It's pretty fascinating. And Evergrande sits at the center of all of that. And it has huge implications for how we think about US-China relations, how we think about how Xi Jinping Ping responds to all of this. Country Garden, I think, was the largest or is the largest commercial property developer, if that's what you want to call it out there. It feels like China is going to bail out the people, meaning they had a down payment on what they thought was going to be their move from lower class to middle class on a home. They want to help them. But it sounds like, at least at this point, they're not interested in bailing out investors that are out there. And what are your thoughts on that, how they bifurcate that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. They're caught in a tough spot because if they do nothing and they let the whole thing just implode, you just look really bad, right? It's bad for the overall ecosystem that they're trying to create of power and of control over the overall economy. But if they do too much, they're condoning this financial excess that led to this type of thing. I mean, the founder has taken $5 billion of dividends out of this business since 2018, I think. I mean, it's completely ludicrous. 
and you have a bunch of people, I think there's 1.4 million homes that are now people are in a lurch, not knowing if they're going to get it. It's like $200 billion worth of home value that's sitting out there. And so the question is, how does China respond to all of that? How do they find a balance that allows them to get the best of both worlds? My personal opinion is that where they're going to land on it is they're going to bail out the people, as you said, and not have it become a huge disaster for consumers and the working class in China. But they're going to let the equity holders get wiped. And I think a lot of the bondholders probably get wiped. And then in that case, you're removing some of the moral hazard problem for the future. Weeks ago, Danny, before this was really a front page story, I went back and looked at my text. You were like, this Evergrande is going to be a thing. And so you had your kind of big short hat on at that point. You know, you look at a lot of different situations on any given day. Why did this one stick out to you? And I know that you originally were coming at it from the Tether situation because you just spent a few weeks rotting, ripping off the tape on Tether and what they hold and whether it is really a dollar for dollar or there's commercial paper in there. And that's how you were connecting it there. Did it start with the crypto aspect? China's been complicit in this for decades. They've knowingly lent money to these companies and knowingly have propped these companies up for some time in order to do what they're doing is to help build out homes for people and apartments and get people to the middle class and so forth. So what really sparked my interest was two things. One was Tether, which I'll get to in a second. But the other was that China has changed the whole Alibaba the thing, the whole Tencent thing. There's a cultural shift there going on. So to me, I'm like, okay, maybe something can actually happen. And then you look at the story and its face value. Forget about knowing who's backing in it, it's China, and forget about the history of how China's propped these companies up. This thing's a disaster. At the same time, the reason, Dan, you're right, it was the Tether, this whole commercial paper thing in crypto. We kept having crypto guests here. We do all the time. And I asked them, why aren't you outraged at Tether's claim? Or, you know, you see all this Bitfinance and Binance and all this shit going on. If the commercial paper isn't cash and it's really Chinese commercial paper run through a bank in the Bahamas, you should be upset about it as a crypto person because it's the integrity of it. So, that kind of all came together. And I do think there's a relationship there. And Tether has come out and said, they don't admit that they have Evergrande, but they say we have Chinese commercial paper. That's not cash liquid investment at this point. So Dan, it was twofold, but it's a whole change in the regime in China attitude. And then this, because I think it has crypto implications. And the last thing I'll say before I get your thoughts here, Sahil, is that China has been outspoken anti-crypto. So part of me was like, wow, they could kill two birds at one stone here, right? And if they expose this commercial paper in the market. Do you think they give a shit that it's held by a token and by Tether? So anyway, give your thoughts there. I totally agree with you on the point of this was a Ponzi at its heart. When you go look at it, I mean, they were taking loans, short-term loans from the employees of the company, basically forcing their hands saying, oh, if you want to get your bonus at your end, you better give us this short-term loan. And oh, it's not a loan, by the way. It's a high interest investment. We're going to pay you some exorbitant interest rate on it. Well, now those employees aren't getting paid. They're not getting that interest rate paid. They they started missing it. And they were using that money. They were paying interest payments with it. Like they were paying other stakeholders with that money they were bringing in. It's like, isn't that the definition of a Ponzi scheme at some point? they were running on. And my question is, what would China have done if this was never exposed by the media? If there was never this big narrative that started building around it, people started staring at it, the world started focusing on it, how would this have been handled? Very different, in my opinion, than now when it's on the world stage and the Communist Party has to actually respond to it in a big way. Guy here, by the way, longtime listener, uh, first time caller (laughs) into your show, by the way. Now, it's interesting what you said before and this comments about they were discovered, so they've made the decisions here in the United States, and correct me if I'm wrong there, folks, but we now capitalize gains and socialize losses. And it appears from the outside looking in that the Chinese have said, you know what, we're going to take our medicine here. Am I way off base? Maybe in some ways they do capitalism better than we do. 
I guess I just disagree with it. I think the reality of how they're handling it has changed on the ground based on the entire world watching. And I think that now they have to obviate the moral hazard. He has to go and make decisions that allow them to get the equity holders wiped out, do the same thing that they've done in the United States for years, to your point on capitalizing the gains and socializing the losses. They're going to bail out the consumers, which I think is right. A lot of these people have paid. They use their hard-earned money to buy homes that they thought were going to be there and be ready for them and be prepared. And it wasn't their fault that this company went and took on $100 billion of debt over the last few years. Other Chinese property developers, by the way, are not this over-indebted. It's a clear outlier in the overall market. I've talked to several really well-known Chinese investors, one by the name of Dennis Hong, who runs this firm, Shaw Spring Partners up in Boston. He's incredible, very, very thoughtful guy. And he's gone and scanned the market on this. And his view was people knew, anyone that was really observing China knew that Evergrande was a mess and that it was taking on way too much leverage over the years and hyping up its overall business on the back of this like debt-fueled rampage of the founder taking all these dividends. It wasn't like it was some clean case study that all of a sudden has blown up. It's been a mess for a long, long time. I think maybe the thought was, though, it's safe paper because China's never going to let anything happen to it. But I go back to the Ant Financial thing with Alibaba, where Jack Ma literally disappeared. And for them to block Ant Financial from running the company how they wanted to, that's nothing like an Evergrande. Yes, there's consumer lending products that want to make sure that they're not charging too high rate. That's a change in the shift in the way that kind of China thinks. So I agree with Guy on one point. I totally agree with you on the other. But China's moving to Hong Kong. They took over Hong Kong. They bought it. They, it's, it's gone. That, to me, was the shot across the bow of how can American capitalism still be kind of a part of China? That's a big change. So now when you have something like this happen, and by the way, some of those banks are exposed, I'm sure, to Evergrande in various pockets. We're going to hear about that if they do start to miss payments in default. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, there? I mean, I also just don't think we can compare. I think it's apples to oranges when you start talking about Alibaba, Ant Financial, all these technology companies that have been built that are fundamentally extremely innovative. Have they done things or taken advantage of loose regulations in certain ways? Sure. As tech companies here have over the years, by the way. But I don't think we can compare that to an Evergrande situation. I mean, property developers around the world have always used debt to build their businesses because they have a really bad cash conversion cycle and you have to. But it's just different to me in my mind. But when you were 18 and even prior to that, the whole theme of US investing for a long period of time was what's their, would they have China? China's good. China exposure is good. You got billion people there buying your product. You can manufacture. That's going to take a long time to undigest is my point. So the psyche of the global investor had always been, okay, I'll deal with China. I know what they are. I know what they're not, but they're a huge part of the global economy. That to me is a potential major shift in the kind of how people think about their businesses, whether they want to set up supply chain there, whether they want to sell their products, whether they want to do anything in China, because we've been in now into online gambling, online gaming, which they're banning, you know, and controlling things, which otherwise for like an electronic arch or someone was a huge growth area. So I just think it's now seeping in more. And I don't see that changing. And Evergrande may fuel that even farther, but there's a bigger thing here behind it. Yeah. I mean, there's a massive change that's happening in real time in China. And really, it's just that they're trying to develop what is their policy on these tech companies and these founders that have gotten so independently powerful because of the wealth that they've created around these companies that they've grown. And that's new. They haven't had to contend with that in the last 20 years until recently. And so they're having to develop a whole policy and a set of strategies around it. And in my personal opinion, I would be bullish on China in the long term. But right now, it's a really disrupted market. I don't know where it's headed. I think the U.S. investors in the U.S. markets to fuel guys fire here is basically Fed meeting to Fed meeting at this point. It's a joke. And China has a hundred year plan here on how they see their businesses developing. And so 
we're about immediate gratification, immediate, and they're long-term capitals, communists. And I think to your point, Sahil, you're saying that's not a bad place to be over time once you know what the rules are going to be, but we don't know what they are yet. Exactly. They haven't developed what that 100-year strategy is associated with this. They can do it and they can plan on that type of time horizon, which is a huge advantage if you're just thinking strategically, but it doesn't seem like they know what the rules of play are right now. So last week on the podcast, somebody used the term ticking debt bomb. I just kind of Googled it while we were discussing the whole situation. So we kind of recorded that on Thursday. I think the markets really started getting hit on this Friday, then into Monday. And every year for the last 15 years, you can find a hundred stories from very reputable financial media things talking about the China debt bomb ready to explode or something like that. It's never happened. It's been contained. I just used the word there. And I've already seen people on finance, Twitter and stuff saying, all right, well, Evergrande's gone now because the market's up a couple percent in the last 24 hours. Is this contained? There's $300 billion in debt. But is this done if they just gets kind of packaged and this and that or whatever? We're moving on. Yeah. I mean, my perspective is it's real assets here. You know, everyone's been wanting to call it the Lehman moment and point to that. Financial assets versus hard assets. The assets here on this balance sheet, it looks like, unless I'm totally missing something, there's a lot of hard assets. They own land, they own buildings. There are things they can actually tangibly sell in these markets, and you don't get the like massive liquidity spiral that might happen with financial assets. But Danny, you should weigh in. Homes were real assets too. They were just levered. This is levered. I doubt yeah. to the extent that we had in the global financial crisis because there was 50 Evergrants going on in New York. <laughs> What was the extent of like the CDO market? It was massive. It was a trillion. Versus a hundred billion here. Exactly. Whatever the number was, it was being predicated, bets being made off of it because yeah. people's hunger and search for yield and AAA this and AAA that. I believe Evergrande's paper was AA. Is that mm-hmm. not that the rating means anything, but it was never AAA. It's AA, but I'm more interested in the commercial paper market. One, because of Tether and two, what other banks went out there to try to get this 4%? All roads lead to Tether. I'm curious whether if China takes this really tough stance on crypto and everything that's happening in that world and the U.S. takes a more accommodating stance, does that just become a geopolitical advantage for the U.S. because you have a bunch of capital inflows where the U.S. becomes like the de facto market for this type of activity? If you think that crypto in all of its forms has a future, I think crypto has a future, obviously, in some forms. But like we can go into this now and we have these companies, Coinbase tried to get approved for a loan product. There's three other companies that are out there doing it that are now being looked at by the SEC. That's not a great product. That's not a great product because the collateral being used, it's not regulated by the banks. The consumer is not protected. It's ingenuity, but they're getting way ahead. You need regul- You need to protect. So the irony to me in crypto is that the real crypto people and the believers believe that you don't need a banking system, but the people that want to professionalize it want some type of regulation because it can validate it and you can actually build things on top of it. So we're caught in the middle of this regulated versus unregulated. Maybe a little regulation is good, maybe not. So I still think that's going to play out and there's going to be little evergrands everywhere in that world, but nothing this systemic. All right. So Danny, are we going to be rotting about Evergrande in the next few weeks or is this, are we moving by this? Because the market's telling us that it's not. No, I'm just saying that's what I'm asking you. What are the implications here? I think for me, the implications are, first of all, I guess they made a debt payment. I don't even know what the size of it, an interest payment, what the size of it was. Yeah, they issued a really vague press release yeah. saying that they had reached an out of clearinghouse solution with the payment that was due tomorrow. I just remember, I think it was Alan Gould at Bear Stearns. We have sufficient liquidity like that day. That's when everybody went to short the stock. You got to present a face to calm the people down. 
this thing's going to unwind Evergrande. It will in yeah. some form or fashion. You think it gets sloppy? It's going to be sloppy. I'm not trading the stock. It's stock, you know, it's down. I thought it was interesting on Monday when I think our bank stocks were down probably across the board 3%. I thought the European banking index, the SX70 was down maybe double that. And so it seems like if there were some sort of contagion, it would first start kind of make its way to Europe. And then here, we probably have much less exposure my guess. All right. So, so Sahil, look in your crystal ball here. You're going to be threading about this for the next few weeks here. I do. I think I will be. I think there's just going to be more to come in the next week or two, mainly on the geopolitical side as China decides how they want to handle it, who's getting wiped out, who's going to be okay. And the consumer angle is really interesting. The psychological angle, all the protests that were happening, the employees, that piece of it, I think is fascinating and is underreported right now. So, Guy, do you think that the volatility that we saw Friday into Monday was largely due to the uncertainty around Evergrande? Or do you think U.S. investors are, are, are focused enough on it or too much? Jim Chanos just said this potentially could be bigger than Lehman in terms of the scope and size. The whole basically system of real estate in China is predicated on what's going on here, number one. Do I think the market's too focused on it? Well, clearly, given the bounce back we've seen and the fact that the volatility move was just a one-day event, yeah, I think we are. But again, it just goes back to what we've seen over the last basically decade. These stories become one-day events, maybe 48-hour events, and we move on to the next. So as much as I think we should be focused on certain things, the only really thing that I have to make those decisions off of is how the market reacts. And quite frankly, I think the market is reacting rather well. All right. One thing's for certain, we're not going to stop covering it because we love this sort of stuff. I was upset that Greensill went away so quickly, that Archegos went away so quickly. There was a episode title from early in our run, I think in the winter, it was like, I love calamity. That was something that actually Danny Moses said on the podcast. I got to get you on uh, on BNPL. We did it already. When, when did you do it? We did buy now, pay later two weeks, three weeks ago. All right. It went something like that. This is not a technology innovation. It's lending and it's... Yeah, it's not a fintech. It's lending. That's what he said. I want to hear more about that. I've been reading more up on it. I'm curious. Listen, it's a great business, but he didn't reinvent the wheel. It's lending. Nothing else. And it's factoring and it's all the other things. The craze in the amount of deals in such a short period of time between Square, uh, Amazon and Affirm, PayPal just bought something somewhere in Japan, actually. Yeah. When you see that sort of concentration of deal flow, it seems like something's going on there. Do you want to be able to offer it on your platform. I get it. What happens when someone misses a payment? 38% of people do miss payments. All right, listen, Sahil, it's your third appearance on On the Tape. Now, when you came on earlier in the year, we were not giving out bottles of Comos to all of our guests, but you are going to get one and you may get multiple ones because you have been a repeat. I think I'm owed three. Uh, okay. It's expensive. Comos, it's our friend Joe Marchese. He is an investor. Our guest last week on the tape, Adana Kinsu, he's also an investor in Comos. It's great tequila. You're going to love it. We'll send that out. We really appreciate you coming on. Since you were last on, there's a lot of stuff that you've been doing. You've been really active. Just give our give our audience a little sense of like what's going on in Sawhill's life here. Yeah, I mean, I've been continuing to build this little mini media empire that I've been working on, I suppose. Having a ton of fun with it, growing the Twitter, continuing to hopefully create value for a lot of people out there and break these things down in a digestible way for anyone to understand. I've got the newsletter going. That's been a lot of fun. And then I've got a show launching in a few weeks with my buddy Greg Eisenberg. So it's going to be a blast. Hopefully people stay tuned. We can't wait for that. We will definitely have you on after you guys launch that again, and we'll want to hear all about it, and you'll let everyone know where to find it. It's probably going to be in the podcast stores. Just search for the guy. Thanks, Sawhill. Thanks for breaking it all down. That was our kind of rotting and threading. I love it. Yeah, Bob and we have been rotting and threading. By the way, when we come back, the incomparable Bethany McLean. 
Hey everyone, it's Dan here. If you like On the Tape, you'll love Trading Spaces. Guy and I do it every Monday and Wednesday live on Twitter Spaces. We break down the biggest market-moving headlines of the day and take your questions. We're also joined by some pretty cool guests, so check it out. All you have to do is follow at underscore Trading Spaces on Twitter and sign up for our email reminders at riskreversal.com. That's every Monday and Wednesday live at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitter. Brought to you by CME Group. Bethany McLean is a financial journalist and contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Previously, she was editor-at-large at Fortune Magazine, where her 2001 piece is Enron Overpriced was one of the first skeptical articles about the company. After Enron collapsed into bankruptcy, she also co-authored The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron with her Fortune colleague, Peter Elkind. A documentary based on the book was nominated for an Academy Award in 2006. She's also authored several other books and investigations around the financial markets, which we will put in the show description. She's the co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't. Bethany, welcome to On the Tape. Bethany McLean, great to have you here. I'm a longtime admirer of yours. Read your stuff. Love your investigative. I call it investigative journalism for Wall Street. That's what I really call it. Can you take us to how you got into the business, how you became a writer, why you chose that path, and why you left Goldman Sachs when you did to pursue this. Yeah, I have a really odd background, or at least it was an odd background for a financial journalist. I don't think it's that odd anymore. But I never set out to be an investment banker. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after college. And I was a math major. And so I got a job at Goldman. Somehow they made a mistake and hired me. And they did make a mistake. I was not a good young investment banker in any way, shape, or form. And after three years there, I thought, well, I'm either going to go to business school and have a lot of debt, I'll be stuck in finance, or I'm going to give this writing thing a try. So I wasn't a kid with a grand plan, and I had never worked for my college newspaper or my high school newspaper, but I went to Fortune. And back in those days, it was sort of the last golden age of the magazine business because all the magazines were fat with dot-com advertising. And so someone like me who hadn't written before could get a start. So I really got lucky because if I had landed in journalism at a different time, I think people would have said about me what my editors did, which is debatably smart, definitely can't write, and that would have been the end of it. But since it was the 1990s and there was an insatiable demand for copy, it was debatably smart, definitely can't write, but we need somebody to do this. <laughs> so so you were a math and English major, eerily similar to Michael Lewis in the sense of he ended up at Solomon Brothers, was disenchanted the same way you kind of were with Wall Street, and left it to write about what he saw. You were given a column in Fortune to write, and then it just so happens that you had friends in the business, and you came across Chanos, who's a good friend of ours, and your career took off, I believe, with your kind of first articles that you wrote about Enron. Yeah, that's fair. I'm different from Michael. I think Michael's a born storyteller. I am not. I had to teach myself to be a storyteller. The math major in me still shines through at very awkward moments. (laughs) So I started at Fortune writing this column called Companies to Watch, which was essentially a stock picking column. And for those of you in the business, you think a stock picking column, what business does a journalist have doing this? And that's actually right. There were no shortage of people coming by Fortune to pitch stories on all these hot stocks from the executives who ran the companies to the analysts who had buy ratings on them to portfolio managers. And at first, I just swallowed the stories whole because they sounded great. And I'd watch as the stocks usually went in the opposite direction from what the pitch had been. And I got embarrassed and I just didn't like being wrong. So I started to try to get to know short sellers. And that was how I got to know Jim. And it was actually a guy who worked for him named Doug Millette, who passed away a few years ago, who was a close friend of mine. And Doug said to me at one point, we can't figure out Enron. If you can figure out how it makes money, why don't you let us know? So Bethany, it's interesting. 
I worked at Goldman Sachs as well. And people, I don't want to say train, but they work their whole life to get a spot and on a Goldman Sachs trading desk or spot at Goldman Sachs. To walk away from that takes an extraordinary amount of inner strength, courage, and self-awareness. Can you speak to that? Because I'm certain you got a lot of pushback from some of your friends, maybe family members as well. Well, that's nice of you. My trajectory there was a little bit different because I was in the analyst training program. So it is explicitly a two-year program, or it was at the time. I stayed for a third year, but even then it comes to an end. So it was less for me walking away from Goldman than it was walking away from the business school trajectory. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I never cared that much about making money. I cared more about what I was going to do. And I didn't love my years at Goldman, and I wanted to try to find something that I would love doing. And so I was, what, 23 when I left, 24? I don't think I really, funny for a math major, but I don't think I really did the math of what that was going to look like. I just followed what I wanted to do. And I'm glad I did, don't get me wrong, even though I'm sure I could have had more financially lucrative careers. But you did use math to turn down the MBA at Kellogg. You got admitted there, and you said to yourself, I think I read an article where you said, Why would I put myself in debt for that? So you were obviously inspired to get away from the business and to write, I guess, is what it was. And so bringing it back full circle, I think you have a behavioral finance aspect to what you do because you even wrote, I believe, that Enron, you're not sure if they committed a crime in their accounting per se, but the way that they portrayed it was. And so there's fraudsters and there's criminals and there's all things in between. So I think that's a gift. I think that's something that no analyst at Goldman Sachs can learn. I think you're born with that inquisitiveness, which has led you well and has all these books that you've written and more to come, I'm sure. So I think the one element in the investment world right now is the lack of behavioral finance thinking and people just taking people at face value and their word and following almost in a cultish way. Like, what do you see out there right now that's kind of going on that bothers you? Isn't that funny how few people who are active in the markets today were around at the time of Enron and not even the global financial crisis? I've actually had people say on Twitter, well, you know, you were wrong about Tesla because look at the stock. And so you were wrong. And I think, well, one thing had nothing to do with the other. But it's funny because when I started my career, for sure, the things that interested me most were when the numbers didn't add up. I was definitely a math major in that sense. And what interests me now more are the human nature aspects of stories. This is a little bit of a crib from a famous Hank Paulson quote, but it's not so much bad people doing bad things or good people doing good things that are interesting. It's good people doing bad things. And it's these stories of business gone wrong, which are always this mixture of self-delusion, maybe a little bit of outright corruption, but a lot of rationalization and self-delusion. And that's the aspect of the stories that fascinate me. We have to talk about every headline that we see that looks kind of questionable on Fast Money Guy and I are often kind of like, oh, well, this EV car that went public through us back and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And then people are saying they throw the fraud word around a lot. And what I've learned in my 25 years in the business is that there are probably much easier places to commit financial fraud than in public markets. With all the tips that you've gotten over the years, and once you broke that Enron story 20 years ago, I'm sure that you were just like a magnet for all those sorts of things. What percentage of the tips or the ideas that you get as it relates to financial fraud are in public markets? And then what actually bears out to be kind of true, if you will? That's really interesting. I'm not sure I can answer that because I'm sure over the years I've, speaking of self-delusion and rationalization, allowed myself to forget the good ideas that I didn't pursue that turned out to be things I should have written about. 
I guess I'm answering this question in a slightly different way than what you asked, but I wish I had a better process for deciding what it is I'm going to write about. And it really isn't a process. It's more just a gut feel as to what's going to make an interesting story right now. And so I'm sure I've missed some things, but I think a lot of it, and perhaps this is a better answer to your question, it's a lot like Enron. You know, most people think of Enron as this giant fraud, and in many ways, it really wasn't. Most of what they did was legal. These off-balance sheet partnerships that Andy Fastow ran, most aspects of them were legal. They'd been approved by the board of directors, by the accountants. And so I'm much more, when it comes to fraud, interested in the stuff that is legal, but nonetheless extremely misleading. And basically, Enron was this edifice of all these transactions that were technically legal, but created a picture of their financials that had absolutely nothing to do with reality. And that's the sort of stuff that I find the most interesting, is the stuff that's legal, but is nonetheless misleading. So it always turns out to be a down market when the tide goes out that you see these frauds. Enron happened to be coinciding with the market sell-off, right, which we saw the dot-com blow up. So that always happens. I would imagine we're going to see many that are out there that are yet to be discovered if and when this market ever turns down. I don't know when that's going to happen, but there's a couple of interesting things going on out there right now. Theranos trial is ongoing right now. We'd love to get your thoughts. It's a private company, but still, it's the same thing. And that appears to be more fraud outright fraud than other instances. Can you comment on that? And then also, I do want to shift to the Solar City trial, which has concluded and we're awaiting, I guess, the results of it, of which you wrote two years ago about this fiasco upstate New York that was going on. So I'd love to get your thoughts on those two things. So Theranos, it seems to me that Elizabeth Holmes tried to take the rules that applied in the tech world and bring them to the healthcare world and made the mistake of not thinking through the fact that these were people's lives. And so I think some of the charges in the trial involve actually the fact that the test misled people. So it'll be interesting to see what she's convicted for, whether it's the financial elements of it or whether it's the fact that her company was putting tests out there that misled people. I don't see how she doesn't get convicted. It seems pretty clear. But and her defense, the Sonny Balwani made me do it defense, that, if anything, makes me more convinced that she will be convicted. But, you know, you have to wonder with Elizabeth Holmes, like with Elon Musk, if she had kept getting capital, if the Wall Street Journal hadn't done that series of stories and her funding hadn't dried up, if she had kept getting capital, could she have made it work one day? So I've often joked that the line between the fraudster and the visionary is blurrier than you might think. We all want to think they're two very separate figures, but they're really not. Sometimes I think the visionary is just the fraudster who made it to the other side, who got the capital to get through the rough patches where they were lying, fudging the truth, pretending things were working and they weren't, and they got to the other side. And, and that brings us to Musk. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. Musk has an astounding charisma and an ability to continue to raise money. And as long as he can continue to raise money, his empire isn't going to fall apart. When I wrote about Solar City, it was less from the perspective of Tesla itself is going to implode and more from the perspective of, wow, look who this guy is, because he does sell himself as somebody who doesn't care about the stock price, is kind of above that. And yet the Solar City transactions, they enriched him. And they protected him at the expense of Tesla shareholders. So there's something revealing about that, I think. I totally agree. And the irony is that Chanos was the one that gave me the Solar City in 2016. And I started looking. That's how I found my way to Tesla. Better or worse, I found my way to Tesla. But that was so obvious to me, right? He had a margin call. He was protecting himself. He had SpaceX buying bonds. He had the whole thing. So this is going to play out. And whatever happens, it'll probably be a minor slap on the wrist. But I think the corporate governance issue in general is a major issue across the markets. And so I don't know when the tipping point is going to be. I don't know what the moment will be when people just decide we're going to go after all this kind of behavior there. But 
do you see anything happening near term other than maybe a down market makes people start to ask those hard questions? Well, one more thing on Musk that's interesting, too, is people forget the aspect of the Solar City story that is really the ugliest, which is all the money he took from the Cuomo administration, the Buffalo Billions, to build that Solar City plant in Buffalo, New York. And that was a plant that promised real jobs to real people in a community that needed them. And one, taking all of the government money kind of flies in the face of some of Elon Musk's positioning. But second, if you do that, then you really have a higher responsibility. You have a responsibility to do that, to make those jobs materialize for those people. And there's something just so ugly about that aspect of it. That's the stuff, right? When you see how this impacts people who are just trying to live their lives and feed their families and the lack of responsibility for that is deeply upsetting to me. I've become a little bit cynical about the process of justice in the wake of one of these calamities. I mean, you can look at Enron and then you can look at the financial crisis. And in one, people paid a price and a big price in the case of Jeff Skilling. In the latter, nobody really paid any kind of price. And there are all sorts of vagaries that go into it. The line between Enron and the financial crisis is a blurry one as well. It's not like one is clear-cut criminal wrongdoing and the other one is, this is all great. This is how we want our financial leaders to behave. It's blurry. And the fact that people weren't prosecuted after the financial crisis is because, most of all, it's really hard to do these prosecutions, but there wasn't an appetite for it. So it depends on what it is that brings the system down this time, if something does. But if it's widespread and it involves all of our best-known business people, you can bet the answer will be, oh, 100-year flood. You bring up a great point because I think people always ask about short sellers in general and, oh, you're just trying to make money. But I think there is another mission here, so to speak. This guy that moved back to Buffalo to work at Solar City, right? It changed his whole life family. You're trying to protect employees of firms potentially from making those type of decisions. The only thing that Musk has ever been sanctioned for was saying that he was getting bought out of $420. Everything else has pretty much gone by the wayside. Even on the Solar City saying, oh, we'll be massive production in 2019. Oh, Universal Studios 2016. Look at these solar shingles. This is the future of the world. It just goes unchecked. And we're going to get into government in general in a moment, but do you think we have a new SEC now, or do you think that it will still be powerless in terms of not wanting to bring down companies? Because they're always there to clean it up, but they're never the ones that kind of take it down. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I wasn't so opposed to the switch in the SEC to going after a smaller time frauds, because while stories like Theranos get all the coverage, in reality, there are all these little Ponzi schemes and tiny little frauds that separate senior citizens from their money. And you'd almost rather see the SEC going after these things and prosecuting them. Retirees didn't lose their money in the Theranos fraud. So I'm a little torn about what it is I want to actually see the SEC spend their time on. But the reality is even an activist SEC and an activist Justice Department only has so much manpower. What do you make of the fact that if this is going on in public markets, these sorts of debates, that the markets are the ultimate arbiter, if you think about it? And I know that you can keep a scam or or something going for a while, but sooner or later, the rubber hits the road a little bit. And I think that was clearly the case in a lot of financial companies. But the thing with Musk is really interesting because Tesla, there's all those Tesla Q people out there, you know who they are, right, on Twitter? And they've been claiming a lot of stuff for a long time, but they're making a lot of cars now and they're selling them all over the world now. And it kind of reminds me of some other tech stories where people just were kind of defending their moats and it's happening. And so the company is the sixth or seventh largest market cap company in the U.S. And I'm left to think, well, it's done. It's over. Musk won. Unless there is some deep, dark secret hiding somewhere. Does that make sense to you in a way? 
Yeah. I haven't looked at Tesla itself in a long time, but I can absolutely believe that Musk could have won. He kept getting money, and he was able to raise money through the periods of time where if he hadn't been able to raise money, an aggressive prosecutor might have come in and said, here's all the lies you were telling. But he made it through to the other side, and so he may very well go down in history as a visionary, or at least it looks right now from a cursory glance at it that he's made it through to the other side. I haven't dug through Tesla enough to know that. But one thing that is really different today than the days of Enron, which is interesting, is that if you want to know the short story on Tesla, all you have to do is go on Twitter. It's all there. For all the downsides of social media, and I see the downsides more than the upsides, there's something really cool about that, right? Back in the Enron days, if you were going to know that Enron was a scam or that there was even a short seller thesis out there, you had to know somebody who knew somebody who was going to whisper in your ear. There was nowhere that was public. And now all you have to do if you're a Tesla investor is go follow Tesla Q on Twitter and hear the opposite case and make sure you can dismiss it. And all the information is there. And that's good, right? Yeah. I mean, you stress reading Q's and K's. I read 10 Q's and 10 K's. We talk about it on the show for people to educate themselves. It hasn't felt like it's mattered that much. Oh, I've discovered something. You think you've discovered some gen. And Dan, let me just come back to you on your selling more cars thing that you made a comment on. First of all, they still make their money on subsidies or they had in the past. And I would love for them to be valued as an auto company, not a fantasy company that's selling you know, that's full self-driving. No, I'm just that, saying. That's my point. That's not up to them. I don't think Elon Musk ever set out and said, I'm going to make a car company that the margins look like the worst industrial company that you can find, but the valuation is like the spaciest, space sexy thing. That was never his design. And the market is giving that to him. Investors are giving that to him. Well, isn't that interesting how much personality does matter today? Because you look at an Elon Musk or you look at a Jeff Bezos and they got dispensation for a long time from the market to be able to do things that other people didn't. You look at Amazon versus Walmart, poor Walmart never had a chance. They had to produce quarterly profits. They had to meet or beat analysts' expectations every quarter. And Amazon could just go off and spend money because of the force of personality of their CEO. So you want to dismiss that stuff, but man, is it a competitive advantage today. So Bethany, I had to take a Shakespeare course in the university and we actually read The Tempest. Hell is empty and the devils are all here. That's the title of your book. And it's a great book. People should read it. It's 11 years old now, 400 pages. But a two-part question. What did you glean from that? Were there a lot of villains or were there just a lot of people with great intentions that wound up on the wrong side of things? And the flip side of that question is, is history repeating itself right before our very eyes with what's going on with our Federal Reserve at all? Yeah, I think so. In a way, the thing that upset me most about the Enron story was the complicity of the system, right? It wasn't these bad guys down in Houston, Texas doing bad things. It was that everybody who was in charge of being the gatekeepers, from the accountants to the lawyers to the Wall Street bankers, was complicit in it because they were all making money. And that, in many ways, I think all my books could probably have interchangeable titles, (laughs) but that's in some ways the story of the financial crisis, too. Everybody was complicit in it because everybody was making money. And so, no, I didn't see one clear villain there. I really loved that title because I thought all the are here was absolutely right. You look back on what's happened since the financial crisis and the role that the Federal Reserve plays in the market, and it's an unprecedented time in history. This has never happened before. I don't know how the Fed gets out, and that's an obvious question, and everybody's paying attention to it. But I suspect that people who are newer to the market may not understand how extraordinarily strange these times are. For sure. But what do you think currently? What do you think about the Fed's role in the market, and how do they get out of this? Sitting here today, and I think the Fed's making a decision, but we all know what that decision is. But what do you think? How hard is it going to be for them to pull out? And I think it's going to be really difficult. They may be able to do it until there's some sort of quiver in the market. And then what happens? And do they step back in again? 
people now expect the Fed to come to the rescue. That's been it's been the dominant thing driving the market since the financial crisis. And when you look back to what the Fed did in the wake of the financial crisis, interest rates were never supposed to be like this all these years later. But every time they tried to get out, the market would throw a tantrum and they'd get right back in. There was an interesting book I heard about. I'm not going to remember the title, but it was back in the run up to the Volcker years in charge of the Fed that a lot of the decisions that the Fed made then were actually quite political in nature. And so the idea that the Fed is this institution that operates separately from the political environment is just not true. And there's obviously a lot of political pressure on the Fed to keep the market going. And so I think that's an aspect of things that I think people don't talk about enough. Agreed. I know you'll be running out here shortly to conduct an interview of some kind, but maybe we can move to kind of what you're working on now. So Joe Nocera and I, we wrote All the Devils Are Here Together, and he was my longtime editor at Fortune. We are trying to write a book on the pandemic, and it's on the economic consequences of the pandemic, really, how it either shone a spotlight on or exacerbated some of our existing economic problems. So it is hard, in a word. It's hard. I think it's probably the hardest book I've worked on, because there are so many directions you could take this and so many important facets of it, and you obviously can't cover them all. You'd end up with like a 100-volume series, even more than the 400 pages of All the Devils Are Here. (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating book. My last question is, we spoke about the Fed, and then you're writing this book. I would submit those two have become quite uh, interconnected, entwined in a way. Can you speak to that? Will the Fed come up in this book? Yeah, I'm working on the chapter about the Fed right now. So, yes. Look at you, Guy. Yeah, connecting dots. That's what I do. I'm a dot connector. I have a great idea. Why don't you put your book aside and come write mine for me? I'll, I'll make you a deal. We'll collaborate. I'm like one one hundredth of your IQ level, So, I, but I would love to help in any possible way I can. I do not think that first part is true, and I will take you up on the ladder. <laughs> getting back to the point that Dan had asked, are you getting a lot of inbound tweets? People send you messages. Bethany, you got to... Look at this company, Bethany. Got and how do you evaluate that? I mean, you're working on a book. Obviously, you're not going to take time off to do that. But does it pique your interest? Do you do work and do you check on it and come back to it? Or it always piques my interest, and particularly when I'm working on a book, because there is nothing I would like to do more than put the book aside and go follow up on a completely different idea. Because books just get so exhausting. But seriously, I am omnivorous in that sense. So every tweet that comes in always piques my interest, no matter how small it is, no matter how big it is. I always think there's a story there and I want to understand it. So I always want to go pursue it. And it's really hard not to be able to. And honestly, the only thing that makes me say no or not look at it is just there's just me. So I can't. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, The Smartest Guys in the Rooms was one of the best, I think, books about markets, about business, about financial fraud. Clearly, since I've been in the business and it's funny, you talk about what it takes to do that. You started writing a series, right? And then it turned into a book. And this is what John Carreyrou did with Bad Blood. And that was a brilliant series in the Wall Street Journal, a brilliant book. I look around now and it's kind of funny. You talked about how in the 90s, there was an appetite. There was all this dot-com advertising in Fortune magazine, which gave you the opportunity to write these long-form pieces. But now some great work is being done on a day-to-day basis. And people with your background, like Matt Levine over at Bloomberg, what he does, and I know Danny reads it, we read it every day. It's great stuff. Do you ever get the urge to do that sort of thing? And now everybody's got a blog. Everybody's got a podcast. You can create content really quickly and disseminate it over social. Do you ever get that itch? I do sometimes. I've never thought that thinking quickly is my forte. It takes me a while to process. And I'm a much better listener in the moment. And then it even takes me sitting down to write before I realize what I do and don't understand. And I don't know that I would be very good at the hot take. I wish I were, but I don't think I think quickly enough. 
Well, you could join us on the tape because we're like a hot take machine here. I'm not sure there's anything good behind it, but there's a lot of hot takes. I can do the hot takes as long as you promise never to remind me of what it is I said. <laughs> Bethany, one last thing before you get out of here. So this capital isn't that you do at a University of Chicago Booth School. Can you talk about genesis of that and what that is? Sure. So I live in Chicago and I got to know this guy, Luigi Zangales, who's a economics professor at Booth and who's a wonderful guy. And he invited me to be on the board of this thing called the Stigler Center and to do a podcast with him. And the Stigler Center has actually been at the forefront. They were early on starting to question tech monopolies and to raise issues about that. And some of the people featured at the Stigler Center are now on their blog are now in the Biden administration. Anyway, so Luigi and I do this podcast, and the idea is to look at things and ask, are they pro-capitalism? Are they anti-capitalism? And what's the relationship between capitalism and democracy? And so we try to tackle topics that we think are interesting. Yeah, I know the Facebook topic we've talked about in here at Nauseam. I know Guy has his opinion on Facebook. Dan's been talking about the series that the Wall Street Journal's been writing. I think you've had some comments on that as well. So we're going to have to take a look at that. But Bethany, thank you so much for coming in here. I look forward to the book. I look forward to you actually focusing again on single stocks. You can help people make money and find the truth in things. And I look forward to you coming back in here and talking about it. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.